Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. It was the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. My my heart was pierced that I can never, ever forget that experience as I walked through and through the children that surrounded me, pulling my dress, their faces looking up at me, telling me, Sakamaki. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. My greatest passion is to help humanity uh, protect it, uh, defend it, and uh, human life is so important for me and to reach out and in every way possible that I am able to, to, to help others that need help and to help them restore that dignity and to see that smile in their face, you know, that something beautiful God has given them because they're here in our in this world and, and life is beautiful. And so for me my passion is to uh do everything I can that is within my power and my ability to bring healing, to bring care to those that need it. I am Sister Norma Pimentel. I am uh director for Overseas Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley and the Humanitarian Respite Center that uh, we are uh, responding to, to the many immigrants coming to the border. It's one thing to say we have passion and the heart to love all God's people. It's another to actively live this out in our daily lives. But one woman not only believes this to her core, she lives it every day of her life. Sister Norma Pimentel is probably one of the most inspirational women I've ever met. Sister Norma serves as Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley in Brownsville, Texas, and has directed this charitable arm of the Diocese of Brownsville since 2008. She helped organize local response to the 2014 surge of Central Americans seeking asylum in the United States, helping to establish the Humanitarian Respite Center in McAllen, Texas. On May 20, 2018, University of Notre Dame honored Sister Norma with the Latari Medal, the highest and oldest award given to U.S. Catholics for her work with migrants and refugees. In 2015, Pope Francis also honored and thanked Sister Norma for her work with immigrants. I met Sister Norma in February 2017 after my visit to the Humanitarian Respite Center in McAllen, Texas, and since then have followed her work and her passion. Today, it is an honor to share her story. Tell me a little bit about your background. How did you find yourself in the Valley? Where did you begin your work? Well, I am I am actually a, a product of my father's American dream. He, uh, when uh, my parents were uh, looking towards coming to the United States and asked for uh, how he could be able to be with here with his family, um, this is when the, he applied for residency, and uh, days after that, I was born. And so I grew up here in the United States. Uh, I was fortunate to be between two countries and uh, be able to enrich myself and become who I am by uh, two cultures, Mexico and the United States. And so when I chose, so I think actually my 
my God chose me. And in the following him more closely and helping these people and, and the church, so I entered the religious life. And it was uh, this particular Missionaries of Jesus uh, religious group that I entered with who were completely uh, identified with the whole immigrant reality. They were receiving families that the Border Patrol were dropping off at their convent and uh, making them uh, be part of our community life. And so, and we would help them go beyond uh, to where they were uh, traveling to, but they stayed with us for a couple of weeks before we did that. And so um, that started to define who I am today because because I, I I saw in the religious sisters that were my mentors, like Juliana Garcia from the Missionaries of Jesus, who guided me and showed me how to uh, stand up for what you believed and, and defend what you believed. And so uh, that's what marked my life. And and I was able to do that and define myself as what God was asking me to be and do in my life. And um, here I am, um, many years later, still working with immigrants since uh, I entered religious life, but more in a more intense way with the humanitarian response I was doing here at the border. What was uh, life for you as a child and then uh, growing up on the border um, seeing it from the early days of your childhood and now seeing it as it as an adult, what was it like being a child and growing up on the border? You know, but growing up at the border for me was a a, a family experience. Uh, we didn't see us separate from the people from Mexico. We would come back and forth to do different things, uh, whether shopping in Mexico or the United States. Uh, it was something very common for us to travel back and forth to celebrate in both sides. Um, everybody was an immigrant, and we didn't distinct ourselves or others as different from us. We helped each other and uh, and recognized the, the fact how families struggle to move ahead and to try to uh, protect and and uh, be there for family. And so. Uh, we have a beautiful experience growing up here in the border as a place where it's safe and it's uh, we are all the one big family, families that uh, care for one another and respect one another. And, and uh, this was my life at the border and has been forever. And uh, most recently, with all the changes that we have in policy and, and fear about the security of the border, uh, kind of destroys all of what I am, I know about who I am and what the border is like. I, I nev- never seen the border as not safe, but a place where we're close, where we work with and and live and celebrate life at the border with the, our neighbors in Mexico. One of the things that has really struck me from your work is the sense of just pure love that you bring to everything you do, regardless of, especially in a volatile conversation. Talk about your passion for the people of the border and bringing love and conversation and trying to bring people together as opposed to creating this idea of separation. Well, you know, when I, um, my experience about, um, seeing families that are in desperate need of help 
And uh, when I see those faces, the faces of a mother and the joy they have in, when we embrace and, and we show that we are one together, uh, we're family, you know, and, uh, and the child embracing me and, and giving me a kiss. And um, it's, it's so close to me right now because I, I just experienced it just yesterday when we were giving out toys to the children and celebrating Christmas and and uh, all the kids coming up and hugging me and, and surrounding me and with such joy. And, and uh, it's so beautiful to be part of uh, an opportunity to bring happiness to a child and to a family, a father crying, because for the very first time in a long time, uh, they see their child so happy and so, and, uh, and they're so grateful that, that we would be able to uh, bring joy to their, to the child. And, and uh, this is something that I think we all have, you know, we all want, once we see somebody in need, we, there's all something in us all as human beings that brings out the best of us to bring joy and happiness and care for someone. And I, I strongly believe that we must pull ourselves together in those things that we're alike instead of trying to focus on the things that we're doing that are different or that we don't agree and and, and that we have to uh, be mad at somebody for what they've done. We have to look at today and see today as an opportunity to to bring life and happiness and peace to all. And and if there's something in each and every one of us that we can contribute to that, let's let's bring that together and start to make our our world, our community better and and uh, happier and and the way God has called us to live as brothers and sisters. I remember reading some of the early articles talking about the first time that you were called to go see the children on the border as they were, I guess, quote-unquote, being held. Talk about that first experience seeing these children and describe that to us. You know, being in the uh, – I haven't had the opportunity to go into the detention facilities, the processing phase where the uh, immigrants and refugees are just – for the very first time apprehended and kept in this facility, a very small facility that is just for processing. And at the time, there was an overwhelming number of children, unaccompanied children that were arriving. And so they were kept in these detention cells until they can figure out where to send them because they wasn't, uh, um, it was so unexpected to have such large numbers. We're talking about thousands of children and, and these were little kids, five, ten years old at the most, and and they were all in these cells, dirty, muddy, crying, you know, scared and frightened, and not really knowing what was happening and why they were there, and and wanting to just uh, uh, with their faces telling you, screaming at you, saying, "Help me," you know. And uh, I was fortunate to be able to keep permission to go in there and. And uh, asked to go into the cells where the children were and pray with them. And I did. And, and it was the most hard, most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. My my heart was pierced uh, that I can never, ever forget that experience. As I walked through into the children surrounding me, pulling my dress, their faces looking up at me, telling me, please get me out of here. 
I can't breathe. My palate is pedaced. And uh, I, I, I was I was so torn at the fact that I couldn't just go out with all of them. And, and they, but it's, we started to pray and we, they pray with me. It's so beautiful as we all cried together and we ask our father to please help us, to be with us, to be with every single child and to help them in this moment of great need. And so um, those moments were uh, tremendous. They helped me to understand the importance of how, what I was doing and, and uh, bringing love and care for the families, especially those ones, they were there, they arrived at our center and we would be able to truly offer them the compassion and the care they need. Describe for people that don't understand how children would end up in a facility by themselves. How does that happen? Is it families dropping them off and at the border and tell them to walk? Describe that for me. The families uh, from Central America that are fleeing, they live in their countries in any way they can. In some cases, they're able to come with their children because they have the money so expensive. Uh, they pay thousands of dollars per person. And if they're not able to go themselves, they send them with either an older brother or an uncle or grandmother or somebody, like, or a friend, a neighbor, somebody else that is going and traveling north. And, and for the parent, it's their only hope, their only possibility. And they send them off like that, hoping that they make it to the United States and that they're safe. And so when they arrive here, the Border Patrol will, will if they're not accompanied by their immediate father and mother, they separate them from whoever they came with and classify them as unaccompanied children. And so they're by themselves, you know, until they're sent to another um, uh, someone who will determine who their sponsor is. And and, uh, and that so in the meantime, they have to wait and be there by themselves. Was there an initial wave of children that came across many years ago um, it's my understanding through these stories that, in a sense, the Border Patrol was kind of overwhelmed and just didn't know what to do with this massive influx of children that came by themselves. Is that true or or, or describe well, it, describe that for us? What happens when a child enters our country and is classified as an unaccompanied child because they haven't identified their parents and for their protection of protection of the child is mostly I presume it's because of uh to prevent human trafficking and the child needs to be separated until they can know who the child belongs to and, and to guarantee that the child's safety, they separate them and so they will they're kept um in detention and then sent to then they're sent to the office of refugee and resettlement who then they will subcontract with an entity that will uh, keep the child and, and follow up with the child and identify their sponsor, their, where their family is, and then in the meantime, they will be there. But at the time that we have that massive wave of children that were classified as unaccompanied, uh, the Border Patrol was forced to keep the children in, in detention because uh, the other department that takes the children and cares for the children was not prepared to handle the massive number of children arriving, and so they didn't have beds where kids could go and be under the care of somebody. That And so Border Patrol was forced to, and was unable to do anything else other than wait until uh, 
facilities were put up to code so that children could be transferred there. You must have had a tremendous relationship with the Border Patrol for them to come to you or you'd go to them to share and then allow you to go in and meet with the children. Is that correct? You know, I after that visit that I was able to enter and, and was given permission by the local judge to go in, I was able to establish a very good working relationship with Border Patrol. We can work together because um, um, they are good people who are trying to do their job to keep our border safe. But they also, they recognize that they're human beings and people that are not criminals, that are the ones that are here looking for protection and safety, and it's a different process that they take. So they realize that we as a community, as a church as well, are here to help the families that are are here and, and making sure that they're safe, that they're taken care of. So we can work together in, in that way. And uh, we have established that relationship, and it's been great. You know, um, we're working to get very closely with, with our local law enforcement, uh, Border Patrol and ICE. It has been a good working relationship to make sure that 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 we respond once they have gone through the process of identifying who they are, and and then when they are released, so they can continue that legal process or immigration process somewhere else. They know that we will take that family, guide them, and offer them the care they need and got an orientation to us to how to continue that legal process beyond this point. You're the executive director, if I understand, for the Humanitarian Respite Center in McAllen. Talk about how long the Respite Center has been up and running and kind of the mission behind what what y'all do every day. Yes. Well, once we uh, saw the need to to respond to the immigrants that were being released and they were in dire need of help. We borrowed a uh, parish hall that was just block, two blocks away at, from the bus station. And that bus, that parish hall became our humanitarian respite center. We instantly was open with hundreds and hundreds of immigrants and uh, hundreds of, of volunteers and people donating and providing us with all of the things that the families were needing to get cleaned up and to eat and to feel uh, the care, medical care they needed. And many of them were dehydrated, children were dehydrating. And so we were able to instantly provide this humanitarian respite center. And we're there for three years. And, and uh, of course, the parish was definitely needing their parish hall. So uh, um, I, they were so good about letting us keep it as long as we needed it, and I was working hard in trying to identify different locations so that in the, in the meantime, we built a humanitarian respite center, a place where we would have permanently uh, receiving families, people that needed humanitarian care. And so in the meantime, we moved out of Sacred Heart to a, a, a space that our local sheriff uh, allowed us or his family owned that was also close to the bus station and we used that for a, about a year and uh, but it was very small so recently in this past month uh, someone else has given us a nursing home that is a little further away from the bus station but it has really been a, a wonderful space for us to to provide the care and the, the respite care that we have been providing to the hundreds of families that arrive daily. And so we will be there for as long as we're able to until we build the, the respite center. We uh, we wish we 
are in the process of uh, of finalizing the design of the building and, and moving forward to to the construction very soon. And so this is where we are at so far, um, and and uh, we're very happy and and that so many people are helping us make this a, a reality. And we always invite everybody to go to our website, humanitarianrespitcenter.org, where they can participate in, and help in this in this success of this uh, respite center. Now a quick break to ask for your help. If you like Intersection, we would really appreciate you take a moment, whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thanks so much for your help. Now, let's return to the show. Talk about and share the process that children and families go through before they even interface with you at the respite center. How do they get to you? Well, the the families when they, once they enter the, the United States, they immediately want to for immigration border patrol to uh, to go to them so because they want to. They're asking for help. They're asking for protection. So, a border patrol will apprehend them and process them. They're they're kept in their custody for a couple of days. Um, I think up to 72 hours. Where there, they determine uh, who they are and and what their what their need is, and so that they they can determine whether they're safe to release them, and uh, or for the most part, they will be put in a family detention center. But if there's no space for the detention center, more than likely, um, these families will continue their legal process at another point in the United States. It is at that point that Border Patrol will notify us how many families are being given an opportunity to continue that process somewhere else. And we'll bring those families to us so that we can then continue that process for them. I want you to explain what it's like for a family member to walk through the doors of the respite center for the first time. And the reason why is because I I was able to witness a mother that was pregnant from Guatemala while visiting the respite center last year in McAllen, walk in the door, and it was the most unbelievable experience I think I've witnessed. Describe that for us and what that's all about. You know, the families that are arriving have been through so much and their journey. So in the moment they leave with all the doubt, whether it's fearful of what is to be expected, it's a very long, difficult journey. They go through different countries. They fear for their lives throughout the every single day they, they journey to north. And once they enter the country, they're exposed to so many other things that that um, are people, um, gangs and people that are trying to hurt them and take money from them and, and kidnap them. Once they're in the custody of the Border Patrol, they continue to be frightened. They, of course, are, are stripped of everything they have except the bare clothes they have on their backs. And uh, they're, they're, they're waiting with understanding and knowing what's happening or what's going to happen to them. The um, temperatures are extremely cold. And... Um, and so once they're able to leave that area and arrive to our center, 
as soon as we walk through, we welcome them. In many cases, we, if we have enough volunteers, we will applaud and clap and say, bienvenidos. And you see in their faces this joy, this expressions of, of unbelief that finally in their journey they encounter someone who cares about them, that really is there for them and, and recognizes that they're people. And so you can see in some cases mothers tears of of joy and um, so happy that they're a place that they feel good about themselves. So it's a beautiful experience. It's a beautiful encounter for not only the immigrants, but for us as well. So for me, it's almost as if God himself is present in that moment where we come together and we embrace and we say welcome. One of the things that I think people have a hard time uh, generally, especially from the years that I've worked on the border um, as a journalist for many, many years, I spent a lot of time describing that individuals that are coming across that are further beyond Mexico, that they're coming from Central America, that's a hard choice to make, to to make those travels. And it's not like we we're used to, we just get in a car and drive to another place, it's a hard travel. Talk about the stories of people that you've met and the hard decisions that they've had to make in order just to begin their travels. And so when they get here, it is a sense of relief that they've made it. Yes. Well, you know, uh, it's a, we see families arrive to our border in great numbers and uh, we wonder why they come, you know. Why should they want to come into our country? And uh, unless we really go back and and really look at where they're coming from and the stories that we hear from them. The stories about it's not an easy thing for a family to come just uproot themselves and and leave everything behind and and uh, possibly put their uh, get a loan of somebody for their property so they could have the money to be able to travel and and uh, they're leaving their culture, their customs, their friends, their family, everybody, everything that they know of and. Uh, not an easy step to take, um, but it's something that, after experiencing the fears and the and what they face day by day with the gangs and the violence and inability to work or to do anything because of what is happening in those countries, they find themselves forced to just uh, leave that their their homeland, and uh, it's not an easy thing to do, and it's a very expensive and. And not knowing if they'll be successful, and where, and with the fear they they're sent back, they're coming to nothing because they've lost everything by making this, taking this risk and taking this uh, step to leave and to hopefully arrive at a place where they will be safe. And so uh, they enter and go through so much hardship along the way. People trying to gangs and and human traffickers finding every opportunity they can to spot them and to uh, kidnap them and stories of uh, dads telling us how they were they were able to get in a bus and then they stopped the bus and they were forced out of the bus and they were put in a stash house and they're kept there until they, they contacted their family so that the family could send them money and if they were lucky to get the money, they were released and, and how they put guns into their the head of their children and saying, if you don't give me the money, I will 
shoot your child. And in one case, a parent was crying, sharing how his this gun went off and 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 shot at the child. But to his amazement, he the child was still alive. And he said, I don't know if it was my God that saved him or this. They, they were just bluffing. But we, I I I cried this thinking that my child was dead and and it was so hard to experience that and uh, it's so it is sorry like this that we hear over and over again how difficult and painful but yet they come because they say if I don't I'm for certain going to be dead or my child will be killed or kidnapped and, and so I had to make this choice and so these are the stories we hear daily one of the things that I think I love about your work and I love about the Respite Center that you call it the Humanitarian Respite Center is you separate the legal from the humanitarian side is there is a group of people that are managing the Border Patrol and ICE. They're managing the legal process. But what I love about what you're doing is bringing the humanitarian side to light that we have a responsibility to be good neighbors and to be human, and God calls us to to open arms to people that are in need. Talk about your 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 passion for the humanitarian side of being so open arms to people when they're in such desperate need in their travels. You know, when we opened the respect, the respite center back in two thousand fourteen. Uh, so many people came to help. It didn't matter who you were, whether you're Republican, Democrat, Catholic, you were uh, Presbyterian, um, Methodist, Baptist, Jewish, everybody, everybody was part and of this response. It's something that um, early on, the first days, I had someone from the city come visit and ask, what, Sister Norma, what are you doing here? And I looked at everyone helping and and it was so beautiful what I saw I turned into you restoring human dignity that's what we're doing and he as an uh, city official took a step back and and then responded with what do you need you know and then went off to the mayor and said we have to help sister Roma this humanity this humanitarian response touches all of us, you know, we're human beings that, that it brings out our humanity when we see this and when we respond, you know, this is who we are. We are people who care about others. It doesn't matter if you believe whether they should be here or not, you know, what your stance is, they are here. They're people, they're children and mothers, and they need help. And so many people reach out and help because they see and they recognize that they're human beings, you know, and this is what we're responding to. One of the things that I love about many of the border towns are the communities like McAllen, like some of my friends in Nogales, that at one time when the border was not the same as it is now, there was so much crossing back and forth and so many families on either side that were just embracing each other with love. But now in this crazy culture of immigration and conversations of big walls, people are still having these really dedicated uh, initiatives to 
to look past big barriers and still say we are still humans and we love each other. Why is that so important uh, in this age of today to be reminded that regardless on which side of the wall we are, we still need each other to uh, push forward in this uh, in today's environment? We are living very difficult times today where there's a lot of controversy, a lot of polarization, people feeling things are wrong, other things saying, no, they're not. I mean, we should be more global and and all-encompassing and other things. We need to protect ourselves and be safe. That's a priority. And I think that that we, I think that we misunderstand our calling to care for others and care for ourselves. As are those two important things? One does not negate the other. We must care for ourselves, make sure we're safe, but we also have the capacity to care for others as well. We have to be able to uh, be holistic, you know, not shut down others because. We come first. I think that we can definitely provide the safety and caring that we need as a country, as a people, and also be able to extend that protection and that safety to those that need it as well. And 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 not lose sight of that humanity of who we are, who defines who we are as people, and and uh, most definitely as Americans, uh, we are a country that respects life and that. Uh, defense life and and it's our life it's not just my life or our life but it's everybody's life that we are able to reach out and care for and be a presence and a defender of life is 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 so important and so uh we must not lose sight of that and we must defend that because then we will lose who we are in the process of trying to save ourselves um what good would it do for us to save ourselves if we lose the most important part of who God made us to be. What are the challenges that you and the Humanitarian Respite Center are facing now as you continue to serve these populations of people that are in dire need? The greatest challenge right now is the space in making sure that we provide and have space that we need. And and right now we are in a temporary location, a nursing home that is quite large enough to be able to do this, but we have so many uh, uh, logistics problems with the toilets and and the, because it's an old nursing home that is causing so many problems. It's, and uh, maintaining and keeping that and running and, and the toilets that can be used because they get flooded and, and trying to figure out how to do, how to provide so that everything flows and people get the opportunity to care for themselves and and uh, uh, making sure that our neighbors are not upset because we're there and, and all of these things are, are things that worry me and, and are, are challenging every day, you know, making sure that we have a decent, clean, beautiful space for the families and and um, always working and trying to make sure that, that we are, are accomplished that and it's a daily task and it's always challenging. What brings you hope every day? What brings me hope every day is uh, a child's face uh, inspires me and, and makes my day when I see a smile in that child child that comes and embraces me. And when I see a family, a mother, and 
with a baby. I can spend uh, some time. I, I put. I just leave the 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 massive crowds and everybody trying to do this and that. And, and I go into a room with a mother with a newborn baby and just sit next to them and enjoy that presence. That brings me hope. Like a child's gives me hope. It gives me hope for tomorrow. Then our future. And if I can do something good to make sure this child's future is better, um, that gives me hope. And so um, I think that God giving me the opportunity to do good gives me hope. You have been traveling so much. I've seen you uh, on the front of the Texas Magazine. Um, I've seen you you know, visiting with so many people, with international friends. I've seen you, obviously, you've met, you know, sat down and met the Pope. Um, You've done so much good work by spreading the message of the work that you're doing in McAllen. What are you trying to share with people who are who need to hear this story? What what is your message about the work that you're doing and the work of the Humanitarian Respite Center? I'm trying to do what I believe God is asking me. He, he's the one that lines up people in my day to to do something and help them and, and care for them. And I, I I just want to show others that that he, God needs us all. He needs us to care for his people. And let's all do that because that's what we're here in this world and this earth. While we are here, we must uh, be part of those that help humanity and, and uh, defend life, and that should be our focus, and, and uh, be the ones that be on the side of God, be on the side of God that, that defends life, defends humanity, defends creation, and uh, that is our role and our job here on this earth, and, and um, let's join with, with our Lord in, in making sure that we do our part to make this world a better world. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts, including Datapoint, hosted by Greg Matthews, featuring trending topics as he explores the idea of the quadruple aim, enhancing patient experience, improving population health, improving provider experience, and reducing costs in the system. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.